0: winning the U.S. Open was when I was like, okay, I've got I've gotten this division now, and being the only competitor to 4P twice. Um, if, if I rewound the clock and you had asked me in 2014, hey, would you rather win five in a row or would you rather 4P twice, I'd rather 4P twice.
1: what's up guys today's guest is a multiple time world champion a member of team paul mitchell and a black belt hall of fame inductee please welcome to the JamCast, mr jackson rudolph what's up man
2: how's
0: it going happy to be here travis Uh, excited for a great show
1: thank you man i appreciate it and i'm like i say i always shout people out that actually wear a t-shirt that represents their team so mad mad props on doing so
0: Yeah, absolutely, man. No, I, ever since I started Sport Karate, and I'm sure we'll get into this, it was a dream of mine to like wear the black and white to be on Paul Mitchell. So uh, anytime I'm a, I'm a guest on a show or teaching a seminar, I've got to represent.
1: 100, man. And what, and what is this epic view that we have behind you? It looks like you're in some sort of high-rise, or where, where are you located right now?
0: Yeah, so this is actually my new apartment for medical school. So I just uh, started medical school, I guess, about two or three months ago, uh, which is why the lighting situation isn't ideal, but I'm doing my best here. <laughs> So yeah, it's my new apartment. We're in uh, Bethesda, Maryland, which is just outside of D.C. Um, so I joined the, uh, the United States Army and I'm going to med school for them. Uh, it was an offer I couldn't refuse. They're paying my whole way through med school. They're giving me a salary just to be a medical student, and then I'll, I'll serve as a doctor for them for several years after I graduate, uh, and then I can go and do whatever I want as a physician or as a surgeon. So, uh, yeah, it's a really sweet gig. It's kind of a hidden gem uh, within the med school application cycle. You know, a lot of people kind of fixate on certain schools or whatever, uh, but when I found out about this, which, while I was at Stanford, I actually had some advisors that told me about this medical school that's with the Army and it. Well, it's with military you could do navy army air force whatever i just chose army okay. um but yeah when they told me about uh, it's called uniformed services university of the health sciences and when i had the uh, the advisors tell me about that i was like that's why i'm applying because that's a sweet deal but, that,
2: that's, so that's why I-
1: i've never actually even heard of someone that went that route man so like major congratulations on doing so
0: yeah, thank you, man. I appreciate it. It's uh, you know we, we always talk about my martial arts dreams, but uh, you know becoming a physician is something that I've dreamed of since I was in middle school too. So it's uh, it's cool to kind of live that double life and be able to do both for a little bit.
1: And so, do you already have a, a field of medicine that you know you want to specialize in, or are you just going into general practitioner right now?
0: I came into medical school wanting to be a neurosurgeon, and that's what I still want to do. I had several, you know, really big inspirations for me. Uh, You know, both of my grandfathers uh, passed away after battles with neurodegenerative diseases. Um, And then, of course, Kevin Thompson's battle with ALS, which I'm sure we'll probably get more into because that's uh, uh, his whole whole struggle and really his career uh, was a big inspiration to me. Um, And so, you know, seeing uh, those loved ones go through uh, the diseases that they went through and them all being of neurological um, conditions, uh, something that really inspired me to go that route. Um, and I, I know I want to be a surgeon. You know, you guys see me with the bow. I love doing stuff with my hands. You know, I think my hand-eye coordination is pretty good. So, <laughs> so hopefully that works out for me. But, yeah, that, that's what I'm focused on right now. But, you know, in med school we do rotations and you try different specialties. And maybe there will be something else that I find out that I'm either really good at or I just fall in love with or whatever. So uh, I'm enjoying the ride for now.
1: That's amazing, man. I tell people all the time when, when I hear that people are going to, you know, a secondary school or anything beyond college, I'm like, I don't, my brain can't even comprehend that my hand cramps when I have to sign contracts and stuff these days. So what's the length of time that you'll actually be in school? You obviously went to Stanford for four years. How much will you be in school for this?
0: So it's not as bad as people make it sound, uh, because when, when people talk about, oh, med school is so long, they, they typically add everything together. So they add the four years of undergrad, the four years of med school and the residencies. And they say, like, oh, med school is going to take like 20 years for you to finish whatever. But that's that's really not the case. So, yeah, it was the four years of undergrad. There's four years of medical school. Uh, it's pretty much right down the middle. Essentially, the first two years are what we call pre clerkship. Um, so you're in the classroom learning your fundamental science, you go to the anatomy lab, you do basic chemistry lab, stuff like that. Um, and then the second two years of medical school, you're doing clinical rotation. So your clerkship period, uh, where for the Army at least, I'll get to go to hospitals all over the United States. Uh, work in those hospitals, learn from the attending physicians there. Um, and that'll help me kind of decide what specialty I want to go into. And then when you apply to residency, and this is true for the military or the civilian route, when you're a resident, that's applying for a job. Yes, you're still learning, but you are a doctor. You have an MD or a DO after your name. Uh, at the med school I'm at, I'll be an MD at the end of it. Uh, so you, you have the doctor title when you go into residency. And uh, you're working as a physician, as a resident. Yes, you're learning so that you can one day be an attending physician, but it's not like you're still in college at another level, right? Yeah. Um, so it's med school itself is really just four years and, and people make it sound a lot this.
1: Amazing. And now obviously with uh, you going to USUHS and stuff like that and kind of mentioned the whole process, I know that you're also a, a second lieutenant in the US Army. Did that mean you had to go through basic training and everything in order to become a part of this program?
0: So fortunately, I didn't have to go through basic, but I went through a kind of different version of it. Uh, in the army, they call it the DCC or the Direct Commissioning Course, uh, which basically means so. AMCAS is the service that is used for medical or pre-med students to apply to medical school, uh, and so USIS is listed on you know the AMCAS website. So it's another school that you click the checkbox and you apply, um, and so I applied just like I applied to any other medical school, and then after I got accepted they said okay if you would like to accept this offer you need to go and be commissioned into the military as an officer um, so it's not an enlisted position it's an officer position which is just a fancy way of saying it's a leadership position within the military um so shortly after us opened this past year uh, i went it was in oklahoma i stayed in oklahoma for a month and did all the military training and land navigation and tactical skills and did some combatants and all that kind of stuff and uh, you know got commissioned into the army and uh, really now that I'm here in medical school yeah like we wear the uniform for certain events and everything uh, but they really do make it feel like you're just a normal medical student Um, and then of course you know after I graduate then uh, when I'm doing my service if there's deployments or things of that nature then of course I'll, I'll go and do that um, but, yeah, while you're in med school, it's really just like being anywhere else. And uh, I'd argue that the education might even be a little bit better because you've got uh, National Institutes of Health right across the street, all kinds of research resources. Uh, the hospital that we work at right now over here in D.C. is Walter Reed, which is the largest military hospital maybe in the world, definitely in the United States. Um, so it's it's a really great training environment.
1: Man, that's absolutely amazing. I commend you. And like I tell people all the time that like, I'm very thankful we have individuals like yourself that are committing themselves to the health services and being able to take the extra time to study this stuff because it's something I couldn't personally do yet. We rely so fully upon doctors uh, and anyone even down to nurse practitioners. So, you know, major respect for what you're doing.
0: Thank you very much. And yeah, definitely shout out to anybody in the health field. That was one thing that was cool about being in that direct commissioning course uh, was that my particular group that went through that training uh, was all medical professionals, whether it was up-and-coming medical professionals like myself, uh, but there were also nurse practitioners and uh, ICU nurses and um, all kinds of different positions that were there training alongside me. So, uh, you know, the, the healthcare system would not work without all of those major role players involved. And it's, it's not just about doctors. Every, everybody else is, uh, is extremely important. Doctors couldn't do what they do without those other uh, key individuals.
1: Wow it's so cool man so cool now obviously we're talking about what you're doing right now in the current times and obviously your plans for the future so we have to talk about everything that's got you to this point and obviously what everyone in this community and the martial arts world knows you for Uh, so let's take it back all the way I've read certain things online but I'd love to hear from your mouth how did you first get introduced to the martial arts and uh, it's kind of a funny story based on things I've read. (laughs)
0: Right, and, and what's funny about it is that it's, it's really a, a pretty basic story for how people get into the martial arts, right? You see something that inspires you, you do your two-week introductory course, and then you get hooked on it and you stay in martial arts your whole life, right? Um, so that's kind of what it was for me. Now, the cool thing was it started at a, uh, I think it was first grade spelling bee, where my teacher, who was like a second or third degree black belt at the time, decided to do a concrete breaking demonstration at the spelling bee. Um, and so she did it, and I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And then uh, shortly after that, a few weeks later, there was this fall festival that the elementary school was putting on and they had these silent auctions all over the gym where you could you know, get gift baskets or whatever. And there was one for this two week introductory course at the local Taekwondo school. Um, And so I like begged my parents to put our name on the list. And, uh, you know, they did, you know, we wound up winning the silent auction and I got my two week introductory course. Um, And then what else is funny about it is that I was not gifted. I was not some prodigy of of martial arts. Um, In fact, when I was a yellow belt, maybe five, six months into my training, uh, my parents actually had a meeting with the instructor and they were like, we think we're going to take our kid out of this. He looks lost out there. Like it's obvious that he's not getting it. Uh, and so they were going to pull me out of the program and the instructor was like no 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 don't sweat it like finish your contract uh and my, my first instructor was incredible I, I give a lot of credit to him for kind of giving me uh, my foundation his name's jason strokerts from uh, Paducah, kentucky where i was born and raised very proud um so a little small town not many people know of but i shout it out whenever i can um but yeah so i got my start there and like i said wasn't very good but uh one of the things that I give a lot of credit to competition, too, um, is the fact that that's what made me good, right? Like I started competing and fell in love with competing and really being in the tournaments and kind of refining my skills to be a better competitor is what made me a better martial artist. Because up until I started competing, I, I was average at best.
1: And so do you remember the age and the belt, the ranking that you were at when you actually first entered your first competition? And did you just start on the local scene or was it in-house tournaments? What was like your introduction to this world?
0: Oh, yeah, I definitely climbed the ladder. So I I started martial arts training. I should have mentioned that when I was six. Um, And then I reached... I think I was either a green belt or a blue belt. We had a belt in between. I was like a green and blue belt. Um, so I think that's the rank that I was when I went and competed for the first time. I was probably seven or eight in that range. Um, and it was just a small kind of interschool tournament. You know, we would go up to Louisville, and uh, the, it was Wong's Martial Arts was the chain of schools. They had several locations in Kentucky and a few outside of the state. And uh, they had this interschool tournament that they held in Louisville every year. Um, And so I would go and compete there. There was also a tournament closer to home in a town called Carbondale, Illinois. uh, And there was a small tournament there that was just a little local tournament for like the school that the promoter was friends with. Right. And uh, I would go and compete there. Uh, And
2: the way that I climbed the ladder was when we were at the Carbondale Open. Uh, my parents were talking to some other parents and these other parents from this other school were like, oh, we traveled RSKC,
0: the Regional Sport Karate Circuit, uh, which was a a really prominent regional circuit in the Southeast and is still running to this day. They still have RSKC tournaments. Um, And so I took that next
2: step up and started going to some of the RSKC events. Uh, And then from the RSKC circuit, uh, I learned that their kind of premier event was the Bluegrass Nationals, which of course was a big master tournament. And so I went to the Bluegrass Nationals, also happened to be at Louisville, and uh, competed there. Uh, was very fortunate to compete there. I think the last two years that, uh, that Master Eubanks was the promoter before he passed away. Uh, and any story that I've ever heard about Ken Eubanks is that he was potentially the best promoter to ever live. From the quality of his event, the, the way that he went about the martial arts, and the way that he went about his tournament, whether he was just top-notch, uh, and one of my like most prized possessions is a second place trophy from the Bluegrass Nationals that has like a clock on it, because that was a big thing of the Bluegrass, is that if you won the overall brands there as an adult, you get a Rolex watch. Yeah. And so even like on the lower level trophies, they, they would put a clock to like represent what that grand prize is, which is really cool. So I have a second place trophy from Bluegrass Nationals in my childhood bedroom uh, that has that clock on it, which I think is the coolest thing. Uh, and then of course, you know, from Bluegrass, learned about the rest of the Nascas circuit, went to the US Open and and I was hooked. And that was by the time that I started traveling the Nascas circuit, I wanna say that was 2006. uh, So I was eight going on nine years old, got a couple of seasons in in that nine and under division, which I really think is critical to development of young competitors is to get some reps in in that nine and under division, where typically the talent's a little bit more sparse because everybody's so young. Uh, Right now we've got some rock stars in that nine and under division moving up to 10, 11. Um, but yeah, overall, uh, climbing that ladder was uh, was a great journey, and I'm sure we'll highlight some pinpoints along the way. There,
1: that is so so cool, man. And so I, I have to ask, like, when you were entering these uh, these early competitions and stuff like that, were you already working with the bow staff and competing with the bow, or were you primarily just doing open forms? Like, what what was the early introductions to competing? <laughs>
2: bow actually wasn't my first weapon i started training i think my first weapon was chucks I mean, they put chucks in my hand at bluebell that was the first weapon i ever did and then as i kept climbing the range you know i did a little bit of commas did some of the sticks did some sword and bow was really one of the last weapons that i picked up because it wasn't part of my school's traditional curriculum uh most taekwondo curriculums to start with don't have weapons i was lucky that my school had the weapons that we did uh, but really the turning point was my school purchased the xma program which was huge back in the mid 2000s right that my, my chat started and uh my instructor's wife actually learned how to do bow off of that program she was a black belt herself too and she learned how to do bow from that program and then one day she pulled me off to the side and said jackson you're going to learn bow staff today and i was like okay cool uh so i picked up bow you know over time fell in love with it but you know i was a kid i loved martial arts even though at the time i wasn't super skilled i loved it i loved going to class sometimes i would show up and help teach like the little dragons class and i would stay and watch till the end of like black belt class and if i was lucky they let me in on the black belt class too even when i was like a red or a brown belt um so you know i was was hooked on martial arts so i was learning every weapon i could any form they would let me learn i would learn it um, and Bo just kind of fell into my lap and, and over time, obviously fell in
1: love with it. 100. 100. So obviously you are very well known for the Bo Staff. So it's so funny that that's the introduction to it in your life. We, we honestly have to thank two people, your instructor for learning Bo Staff and also the XMA system clearly for, for being influential in that. Uh, how old were you when you finally got your black belt and how old were you when you, I guess, discovered your love for the bow?
0: Uh, I tested my black belt on March 31st, 2007, never forget it. Uh, so I guess I was nine years old when I got my black belt, um, which I admit is probably a little bit too quick to get a black belt, but that's the way the system worked out. You know what I mean? Uh, so I got my black belt in about two years of training um, and then at that point, you know, I moved up into the black belt division competitively as quickly as possible. I, I started doing some NASCAR tournaments as an underbelt. I think I did Bluegrass, Battle of Atlanta, US Open, all as an underbelt, um, many of which I didn't do so hot at, right? I remember going to Bluegrass and like losing all my divisions. And I don't just mean like getting second, I mean like getting close to last in every division. But the first ever bow form that I ran at US Open, because I was doing bow by that time. Uh, My first ever vote form I ever did at U.S. Open, it started with just like a basic figure eight forward strike. It might have even been like that first basic X of A form. And uh, the very first move I ever did at U.S. Open, I went for the figure eight. I hit my leg and dropped on the first move. And back then, the judges were like unintentionally petty because that was – so obviously on NASCAR for a long time, it's been when you drop, you get disqualified. Well, that year at U.S. Open, they had, you know, the dry race board scorecards. And so instead of just, like, letting me bow and then move on, the judges literally wrote, like, DQ on the card and, like, held it up. And I was like, great, thanks, guys. Uh, a little salt in the wound there. So, yeah, like, my first U.S. Open was, like, a train wreck. Uh, I think my traditional divisions went a little bit better. Um, and that's the funny thing is that early in my career, if you would to ask somebody in 2007, 2008, hey, is this Jackson Rudolph kid gonna be any good? The answer would have been, well, he might be a traditionalist. Like, he wins traditional sometimes. So like, if he's ever good, that's what he'll do. He can't trick, so he's never gonna win extreme. Like, if he's ever gonna be good, he's gonna be a traditional guy. And then, uh, you know, lo and behold, now people call me the green stick dude. So uh, (laughs) obviously that changed over time. But uh, yeah, so I started traveling, doing tournaments as an underbelt. Tested for the black belt in March of 2007. Um, and then really was like all in on the NASCA circuit at that point I think that same year in August I flew to my first tournament because my parents were driving me everywhere for a long time uh, So I flew to my first tournament to go to the US Capitol classics in 2007 2008 somewhere in there and uh, I, I was hooked you know con- again competition is what kept me in martial arts And that's why you know a lot of people that follow me on Facebook and on social media they see me trying to plug uh, sport karate as a curriculum for martial arts schools uh, because I firmly believe in its retention benefits. I would not have done martial arts for as long as I've done it and now intend to do it my entire life. I would not have done that if it wasn't for competition, right? Eventually, I would have run out of things within the school that were stimulating me and keeping me coming back, right? The competition is what kept me in the sport. Um, And so that's what I preach all the time to school owners. It's like, hey, you want kids to keep coming back? Show them competition. Teach them the right way to do it. Teach them the right way to handle it. And that can be, outside of just the ranking system, that can be the source of goal setting that's going to keep those kids coming back, which is going to be good for your business as a martial arts school owner. But it's also going to be better for those kids because, as we both know, Travis, martial arts changes lives, right? So the longer you can keep people in it, the better.
1: Man, in those fundamental years when you you actually started competing and obviously starting to travel and hit the NASCAR circuit at a very early age, uh, this is a question I'm always curious about. How many days a week were you in the gym and how many hours were you putting in each of those days?
0: It was seven days a week, and I give my dad all the credit in the world for this. My dad never stepped on a mat a day in his life, doesn't really have any formal martial arts training. I think when he was a kid... He got like a purple belt in judo or something random, right? But he was like, yeah, I don't remember any of that training. He was probably like seven or eight years old. But anyway, so my dad like is not a martial artist. Uh, But seven days a week from the time that I was seven or eight years old until I was 18 and moved to college. he would. So we trained at my church. My church gave us a key. And so we would train in this little open space in the foyer of the church. And uh, we, we would go every single day, right? Sometimes it'd be right after school. If he got off work early, we'd go, you know, four or five o'clock. Uh, you know, some nights it'd be late. We'd go in at nine, ten o'clock and we'd train for a couple hours before we went back home and went to bed. Uh, but it, it was seven days a week. And it was an average of, of three or four hours every single day, um, putting in the reps, getting that work in. And that's what it took, right? Because well, like I've already said, you know, I, I was not a natural talent. I had to work for everything that I've been able to show in this sport. And um, I, I credit my dad for, for knowing what it took. My dad was the one who, uh, who you know, kind of set up that training schedule and was like, you know, hey, if we train every day and we do this amount of time, you can get good pretty quick. Um, and, and the other thing that my dad always talks about whenever you ask him about it, and I, obviously I don't remember this because I was just a kid, um, but he says that there was never a single time that he had to tell me, hey, Jackson, let's go train today. Apparently, every single time when I was that age, I was like, Dad, when are we leaving? Like, can we go? Like, Let's go to the church, let's go train. Um, because that, that's genuinely how much I loved it, right? And I do remember that. I remember like being completely obsessed with martial arts and trying to get better at it, trying to get the new bow tricks down, trying to come up with new bow tricks. I mean, I was trying to think of bow tricks from the time that I picked up the bow, right? Yeah. My instructor didn't let me try them until I'd been already training with the bow for like six months because I wanted to make sure I could strike first. Uh, but really, in all those training sessions, I was always thinking of new ideas. How can I do something different? A lot of times they were bad ideas, but sometimes you got the good ideas, and then you know, you build on that. You put that into the form, and you see how it goes. Uh, but yeah, when I, when I was you know, a kid, and then really through high school, uh, it was seven days a week, three to four hours a day. Obviously, when I became an adult went to college, that changed. Um, you know, I'd probably get in five days a week, maybe two hours a day, which is still a lot. Uh, but it wasn't what I was used to you know in, in high school and as a kid um, and then now in med school it's kind of this weird limbo situation of like how much longer am I gonna be competing I was at US Open I didn't compete a diamond so yeah uh, you know, what I've been telling people is it's like when I'm ready I'll compete right if I feel like I can be myself if I feel like I can be at my best at the highest level I'm gonna go out there uh, but if I've been focused on medical school finals like I got coming up this week for example like I you know I'm not going to be out there competing because I need to focus on, you know, my, my long term, which is going to be medicine. Uh, but don't get me wrong. I'll always be involved in sport karate. I love this stuff too much. I'll always be coaching. I'll always be around at tournaments, even if I'm not putting on a uniform. I'll be there coaching, judging, whatever I got to do to uh, to help sport karate stay alive.
1: Hell yeah. And so obviously as someone that is currently uh, holds the most men's ISK open weapons titles. And as we joked about off camera, I don't even know the number of sport karate world championships that you've won. What was the tipping point? Do you remember that first tournament where you got on stage? Do you remember the first title that you won? And is that something that's a vivid memory in your mind?
0: Oh, yeah. Um, I that all of those big, like, defining moments in my career. Um, that's something that I'm very thankful for in retrospect, is that I was always somebody, even when I was a kid, I was a very thoughtful kid, which is kind of weird. Um, but I, I always, like, took the moment in. Like, I, I never just, like, greased through something and just got it over with. I always, like, appreciated the moment that I was in, which as a kid... It's just how I was. That wasn't an intentional thing. Um, but I'm extremely grateful for that now, looking back on it. Uh, so my first time that I ever made stage uh, was at Diamond, which was like Huge tournament to like get on stage for the first time at right a lot of times people get on stage for the first time at Like a smaller tournament, you know, there's maybe like a hundred people in the crowd at the night show You know, it's not a big deal, right? Like you can kind of get the nerves out by going and doing a smaller stage, right? Uh, but that was not it for me Like I got on stage and it was actually the, the runoff was a really good one So it was for traditional forms, which will probably surprise a lot of people not weapons It was traditional forms just my hands And uh, I was competing against the guy who was like unbeatable at the time, it was Ryan Wells. Um, I don't remember if he had already made the jump to Paul Mitchell, but he was on straight up for a long time under the tutelage of the great Joe Greenhall, Uh, and Ryan was the one who was really responsible for innovating, you know, back in that era of NASCAR where traditional forms was not the Olympic stuff that we see now, but it was more performance style traditional. Ryan was the one who innovated, like getting low into the horse stance and staying around in the horse stance and staying low the whole time. Um, and that skill is what made him effectively unbeatable in uh, in weapons and forms on the traditional side, right? And so I competed against him in the traditional weapons runoff that went first, uh, and I had a stumble, right? And then one of the judges, completely unsolicited, told me after that after that runoff, when Ryan beat me because I stumbled, they were like, "Hey, if you hadn't stumbled, you, you could have had him just then." And I was like, "What? Because I've never been on st- I've never beat Ryan Wells. Like that's crazy, right?" right? so the next runoff that came around was traditional forms uh and i hit my form clean and you know i think i won like a three two split and uh you know beat ryan wells and, and made it to stage and i think stage that night was myself tiffany larson austin crane and dana hewer i want to say that's what the division was um so yeah like stacked of like a lot of those like youth champions of that era and i was like just kind of thrown into it my first time ever on stage And, you know, Diamond Stage was really special, and still is, right? Like, Diamond's crowd is always electric. You get a lot of the people from the national karate schools that Larry Carnahan owns coming in and supporting the event. I remember the year that I was on stage the first time, the crowd was like doing the wave before the night show started. Like, it was wild. Um, And so I went up there and, you know, I I was proud of my performance. I did a good form, didn't get the win last night because practically nobody does their first time on stage, right? But I I do think that being on stage at Diamonds for the first time is what prepared me for big stages later on, especially when I was doing CMX divisions where there was a chance of dropping my boat, right? Because when I had to go up there on that Diamond National stage, one of the most prestigious events in the country and compete in front of all those people, uh, it kind of desensitized me to pressure, right? Like I just went up there and did it. Um, And so throughout, uh, so that was the end of 2008. Throughout 2009, I started to win more and I started to win uh, in more varied divisions, right? So I'd make stage for traditional forms sometimes, sometimes I'd break through for traditional weapons, and I got a couple of breakthrough wins for CMX weapons, um, but I, I would say at that time, I would have probably been considered a good traditional competitor, a contender to win the overall, and I was an above average CMX competitor. Like I had a chance, but I was I was definitely not a favorite to go win uh, in CMX weapons, right? Uh, and for those of you viewers that aren't sport karate people, CMX, when I say that, just needs creative, musical, and extreme, the three open divisions of forms of weapons, right? Um, So that was 2009. Didn't get any wins on stage, but I was on stage really consistently and on big stages, right? Got to go on stage at the Quebec Open um, and then several other tournaments, um, but did not get on the U.S. Open stage. I was like this close to U.S. Open stage and wound up getting snubbed because I was going to get on for one of my traditional events, and then uh, it didn't work out. Uh, But it's actually a blessing that it didn't work out. So the next thing that happens is we fast forward to 2010, uh, and in 2010, I had an idea, right? I had this gut feeling of this idea that I wanted to try. So a bit bigger than that. 2009 i would win a lot but not break through and get the big win was because a lot of my top competition was trickers right guys that would you know have commas and they would have good comma skills too but they would trick all over the place right and we're talking in an era of like great young comma competitors austin crane who i already mentioned tyler weaver dre rice like there were all these great young comma competitors Um, And they could all trick, right? And that was something that I could not do. Not because I didn't want to. A lot of people don't know this. I wanted to learn how to trick when I was a kid. It's just I never really had the right specialized training for it. And so it was never a skill that got developed. And then by the time I was like 14, I was like, well, I guess I'm never gonna trick. And so I just kind of went with it. But that's besides the point. So off season of 2009, I'm thinking like, okay, what can I do to try to beat these triggers, right? and what i recognized was that the the thing that trickers had on bow people if you look at bow forms from like the mid 2000s a lot of bow forms were very very straight right you start at the back of the ring you do techniques moving forward and then eventually you get to the end of the form there's probably two or three tricks in the form right kind of one in each third of the form there's some big trick that happens right but these tricks really weren't put together into combos and the forms were very one-dimensional kind of straight to the front and so I said, well, what if I could take the format that trickers use, where they work their way over to the right side of the mat, they trick all the way across it, they work their way up to the corner, they trick all the way to the back, they come back to the middle, they trick all the way forward. What if I could use that format so that in my bow form, I could use up that, that amount of space? And then maybe that's the thing that's making these tricking routines so appealing. Uh, and so I gave it a try. So what I did was I copied that exact format and I said, okay, I'm gonna do striking up to the front right corner. I'm gonna do a bow trick combo, which really at the time, bow trick combos, if you saw them in competition, were two or three techniques long, not the four, five, six trick combos that I started doing in 2010. And so I did those trick combos all the way across the mat and then kind of faded it to the back corner, re-centered myself with a strike combo, did a few strikes coming forward, trick combo up to big trick at the end, and that was the routine. Um, and I was being trained by Lauren Carney, and so one thing that Lauren always instilled in me was you've got to make sure that you've got plenty I mean, of striking, right? Um, and so that's what I did. I made sure that when I was building that form, that there was an even ratio of strikes to tricks. For every trick combo that I did, there was a strike combo, and there were more strikes in the strike combos than there were tricks in the trick combos. Because I am, you know, I mentioned if I was ever going to be good, it was as a traditionalist, right? So I firmly believe in the importance of the basic martial arts, right? Those foundational skills Um, so I build this whole form and I've got this master plan my dad likes it I like it and I've got this gut feeling that it's gonna be good right Um, and then when I showed it to Lauren she actually wasn't a big fan of it right she was like I don't know if this is going to work. And I don't blame her for that, right? Because at the time, it was this crazy, ridiculous idea to, like, do these bow tricks in a combination, right? You think about my training lineage, you know, Lauren was trained by Casey Marks. Casey Marks was trained by Mike Bernardo. All of those people were innovators, but they would have never done release after release over and over again in a form, especially not, like, in a moving combination like that. It was just taboo. So I don't even blame Lauren for not liking the idea because it's like... I don't think a lot of people would have liked the idea um so 2010 season starts and for some reason my dad and i were like i know that we got that advice but we need to just try it we're just going to try it and we're just going to see what happens Lone star open down in austin texas was the first tournament in 2010 uh compete in the first division i make it through the entire routine get to the very end and i drop. Uh-huh. Joe Greenhall was the center judge, right? And anybody that knows Joe Greenhall, this story is not going to surprise you. When I dropped on that, like, second-to-last move, Joe Greenhall, as the center judge, he clapped me aloud, and then he uh, yelled a four-letter word out of frustration because clearly he did not want me to drop that routine, right? And I was like... That's got to be a good thing, right? And so my dad was like, I think that was creative. We were going into musical. So my going into musical, my dad was like, don't change anything. Do the same thing, just hit your form. Perfect. That's the plan. Went in, did the form, uh, hit it this time. Joe Greenhall gives me a 10. I make it to the runoffs, right? So I go into the runoffs. I have a stumble or something happens in the runoffs. So I wind up losing the runoffs, right? Very next tournament was compete nationals. Different story. Yes, yes. One, both of my divisions, went to the runoffs, won my runoff. Actually, at that tournament, I won the uh, creative weapons runoff, traditional forms, and traditional weapons runoff. So I was on stage like three different times that night. And uh, this was back when the Compete Nationals had the bonus rest, right? So kind of like World Cup format is now, right? Compete Nationals back then, it was the winner of, and that was also like an experimental year on NASCAR where they did 17 and under grades, right? So typically, like now, it's 13 and under for the weapons and the forms, and then 14 and 17. So the really big kids are never competing against the really little kids, which makes sense. 2010, NASCAR said, let's try something new. Let's do CMX weapons, 17 and under, traditional weapons, 17 and under. So you're mixing a larger age group, but you're keeping the, the principal division separate. The CMX and the traditional for the forms and the weapons were all separate, right? And so I make it to stage, the CMX division was myself doing bow, of course, Micah Carns doing bow, which a lot of people that are Micah Carns fans don't even know that he did because his forms were so iconic, right? So as Micah Carns doing bow, It was Dana Hewer doing bow, and then it was kind of hometown Mackenzie Emery, because she's a Californian, right? Uh, Doing commas, right? So Mackenzie and I were the 13 and unders, Dana and Micah were the 14 and 17s. Um, I do the new form on stage in that division, uh, and I got another 10. Dennis Brown gave me a 10, remember? Like it was yesterday. And uh, I won that first overall grant. Typically, you win your first overall grant, it's like, you know, big deal, and then you go celebrate, and you know, that's it, right? Well, this Compete Nationals had the bonus round, which was for the gold medallion. And so the 17 and under traditional forms, traditional weapons, CMX forms, CMX weapons winners all went against each other. And this was exponentially more difficult because here was the situation, right? For, uh, 1700 traditional weapons winner was Shaheen Jahanvash, right? Yeah. Who we all know is one of the most dominant traditional weapons competitors of the last decade, and it was his dad's turn, right? Yeah. So it's I yeah. yeah. got competing against yeah. that, yeah. right? So there was that. Uh, Jacob Ellis won traditional forms, uh, and he, at the time, a lot of people now know him for his choreography and the famous Iron Man form that he did, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but Jacob Ellis back then was like a really, really good traditional forms competitor, and then the... Uh, the biggest challenge was it was Micah Carnes doing his CMX open hand form because he won under CMX forms. And, uh, and then it was me with my bow form. So I was the only 13 and under representative. Everybody else was 14 or older and uh, went out there, did my form again. I think I may have added in an extra trick or two just to spice it up a bit um, and wound up winning the gold medallion that night as well. Uh, So that was like huge breakout moment for me, not only did I win the overall, but then I went, I mean at the time Micah was unbeatable, right? And for years after that Micah was practically unbeatable, right? Uh, Won every US Open title those years, won the Warrior Cup. I mean Micah uh, was truly unstoppable during that time period. Uh, And the fact that my bow form was able to do it once in that very specific scenario is, is a really cool memory for me. So shout out to Micah, tons of respect for him and especially everything he's doing in the stunt world now. Uh, he's a legend in terms of sport karate. I and mean, he's making a name for himself in stunts, too. So shout out my cards um, So yeah, that, that was the big breakout moment and then I had a drought for a few months I didn't win any of the other tournaments. I go to US Open I get on stage at US Open didn't get snubbed in 2010 uh, and I wound up winning that US Open title that year as well uh, and that was really how my career was defined in 2010, was I was this traditional guy that got on stage for tradition all the time. I had this new idea in 2010, it got me a gold medallion win, it got me a US Open win, and then that kind of set me up for the next stage or the next chapter of my career, which I would say started in 2011, and I'm sure we'll get into that.
1: <laughs> 100% man. And So obviously, as someone that has won, like we kind of talked about off camera, uh, probably over 80 sport karate world titles at this point in your career. One of the other pinnacles of sport karate martial arts is something that we alluded to at the very beginning of the episode, which is getting onto Team Paul Mitchell, which for the longest time, for anyone that's a fan of sport karate knows, that was the premier team not to disrespect or talk down upon any of the other competition teams that existed out there, uh, but let's be very honest, uh, to be able to wear the black and white to be able to represent and be a member of Team JPM uh, was something that every little kid wanted to at least have the uh, the possibility of being a member on. Uh, so when did you finally officially get that bid to uh, to join uh, JPM?
0: Mm-hmm. And I think you set the stage there perfectly, Travis, because that was exactly how I looked at JPM growing up. When I went to that first US Open in 2006, and this is a story that I tell all the time just because it, it's so cool, um, I, we sat in like the back row. It was the sport karate equivalent of the nosebleeds <laughs> at the night show, right? Right. And I was sitting next to my dad, and we were watching, you know, Matt Imig and Lauren Carney. We were watching all these Paul Mitchell people on stage win, right? Damon Gilbert, I'm pretty sure, fought that night. Like, everybody that was wearing black and white was winning, right? And that was the moment that I was like, well, this Paul Mitchell team is pretty cool. Because up until that point... I thought that I just wanted to be on teams that I thought had cool logos. Like I remember thinking the Pro Rank logo was cool. I was like, oh yeah, I'd be on Pro Rank or the straight up iconic purple uniforms. I was like, I don't want a purple uniform, right? Uh, but that night at US Open, I was like, this is this is the team, right? And so I looked at my dad and I said, one day I'm going to be on that stage. I'm going to be on that team, and I'm going to win. And my dad, like, chuckled at me. He was like, eh, okay, we'll see, you know what I mean? Just trying to, like, let me down gently, right? Uh, but I, I was serious. I was like, one day I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win on that stage wearing that uniform. Wow. Um, so four years later, 2010, when the first U.S. Open, 2011, and the reason I'm centering this around U.S. Open is because it leads directly to the Paul Mitchell moment. Um, so 2011 went on a seven-tournament win streak, right? It, it was It was wild, wild nice. ride. Uh, you know, won each of the the first seven tournaments of the season, compete nationals, uh, aka Grand Nationals. I don't even remember what some of the other ones were leading up to it. Uh, I had a stumble at New England Open and wound up losing in the runoffs at the New England Open, and then U.S. Open was right after that, right? So I won seven straight, had a stumble, took an L, went to U.S. Open. Obviously was defending champion, was the points leader by a mile, and so I got put on stage automatically, right? Uh, and we can get into the US Open selection process more because that, that's an interesting detail a lot of people don't know about. But anyway, uh, so 2011 brought out another brand new move, um, which was a, a zero gravity, which is a throw where I throw the bow from behind my back, the bow rotates horizontally. That had been done before, uh, but I decided to 360 it. nobody had ever thrown the bow up like that, spun around and caught it in a form. I put that at the end of my routine caught it got the win i think i got four or five tens that night um, and so that was 2011 right and so now i'm sitting with two career u.s open titles i was riding a seven tournament win streak i'm eight and one on the season which is building a pretty good resume for a paul mitchell invitation yes. right and i knew that they were recruiting young talent because within the last year or two they had picked up ryan wells and so I was like, well, they, they look at, you know, competitors my age. They just picked up that guy. Like, you know, if, if I keep doing this, like something good should happen, right? So the rest of the 2011 season goes on. I think there were maybe 14 tournaments in 2011, and I think I went like 12-2, and two, right? Like I won 12 overalls and only lost twice. And I was like, okay, this offseason is when the call has to happen, right? And I did get phone calls, just not from Paul Mitchell Um, and I I won't say any names out of respect for these teams, but there were teams that were reaching out to me saying, you know, Hey, we'll pay for you to go to any tournament you want to go to. Right. And I'm talking like big teams, teams that would have been considered rivals of Paul Mitchell at the time. Right. Um, but I knew deep that I wanted Paul Mitchell and I knew that if I went to a rival, then that's against everything that I stand for, right? And so although I was extremely appreciative and, like, blessed by the fact that these teams were like, hey, we will sponsor you. We will send you to these tournaments to wear our uniform and compete," be, I turned them all down. I was like, I can't do it. I can't do it. Wow. Um, so I kept holding out. Uh, 2012 comes along. Warrior Cup was the first tournament of the season, if I remember correctly. Still no call from Paul Mitchell. I'm like, man, this is also my first year in 1417. Right, So I moved up from 13 and under. I'm now in 14 to 17. The grands are now separate again. So it's just going to be me as 14 to 17 guys. And then I realized Paul Mitchell had a 14 to 17 guy. They had Austin Crane. And Austin Crane, when I was in 13 and under, Austin Crane was winning some of those overalls in forms and in weapons in the 14 to 17 ring. And so I'm like, well, maybe... Maybe it's the fact that they've got him, and so they don't think they need me, right? So now that I'm, now that it's 2012, now that I'm in this division, if I just start beating the Paul Mitchell guys, they don't have a choice, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, Chicago comes around, I go compete in Chicago, win my first Warrior Cup, right? Okay. 2011, I won the grands, made it to the Warrior Cup round, and then dropped. And then uh, my teammate Michaela Johnson, uh, all-time great comic competitor in my opinion, innovator of a lot of the comic tricks. Uh, Michaela Johnson won her, her Warrior Cup that night. So 2012, I won my first Warrior Cup. Uh, I think it was me and Dallas Lou in that Warrior Cup final. I was 14, 17, Dallas was 13 and under. And Dallas and I had a couple of Warrior Cup finals back to back. It was me and him for two or three years there uh, in my initial kind of run of Warrior Cups. Um, So I win the Warrior Cup, uh, but the Paul Mitchell guys weren't there, right? Because at the time, Warrior Cup was not a Paul Mitchell sponsored event. So I didn't beat their guys. I (laughs) what was a Paul Mitchell sponsored event the Lone Star Open and it was a sponsored event that year because John Paul DeJoria, CEO owns property in Austin Texas and so they were having this big I think it was the 20th
2: anniversary at the time
0: yeah 20th anniversary sounds right so they were having this big like 20th anniversary celebration and John Paul was at the tournament. John Paul DeJoria came to the Lone Star Open and so I foolishly was like, oh, if I just beat the Paul Mitchell guy with John Paul DeJoria watching, they'll put me on the team on site, right? And then I say foolishly because there was no chance that I was beating anybody on Paul Mitchell with John Paul DeJoria watching, right? Those judges were not going to let that happen, right? Um, so I, I took an L at Lone Star. Then where things started kind of shift in my favor was Ocean State Grand Nationals, the Paul Mitchell home tournament, right? I go to Ocean State's. I make it in the runoffs against Austin Crane, which by the way, huge shout out to Austin Crane as well. I looked up to him for years when I was coming up. Uh, and then his adult career, I feel like is one of the most underrated adult careers of like any competitor ever, because he had some gnarly performances as an adult that just nobody talks about. But I got a lot of respect for Austin Crane. But anyway, Ocean State Grand Nationals runoffs comes around and I beat Austin Crane in the runoffs in front of all the Palm Beach people. And I'm like, that, that that helped, that was good, right? Uh, but still, no phone call, no phone call, U.S. Open comes in, right? And I'll preface this by saying that typically Paul Mitchell gives people some notice, right? Like they'll call people at the beginning of the off season so that you have time to like get your uniforms and like mentally prepared to go represent this iconic team. That did not happen for me. <laughs> Friday morning of U.S. Open, U.S. Open started at noon that year. So it's probably 10 a.m. I'm just like getting out of the shower getting ready to go warm up and everything. And uh, I come out of the bathroom, my dad's on the phone, and uh, he was like, it's Lauren. And, I, and Lauren, at the time, was forms and weapons coach of Paul Mitchell, still is right now. And um, it was, it, Lauren was also still my private coach. So I was like, why is Lauren calling me like the morning of a tournament? Like She never does this. This is weird, right? And so I, I took the phone, and then she said that they had just gotten out of a meeting with the Paul Mitchell executives and that they wanted me to change colors for tonight.
2: Wow! And I was like
0: what (laughs) so i'm like crying i'm like emotional and i'm like yes yes of course Uh, i go up to lauren's hotel room i get lauren's jacket and lauren's paul mitchell uniform and that's what i wore to compete in for the first time um and what's funny is when i went downstairs a lot of people thought it was a joke a lot like they were like why are you wearing lauren's jacket i was like (laughs) "No, no no like i'm actually on the team now like i'm on paul mitchell now like watch and uh, so I literally like walked it. There was no social media announcement like you get nowadays. There was none of that. It was I showed up and I was in Palmachia here, right? Um, and that was crazy. So I competed in that U.S. Open. Uh, you know, went through the rounds of competition, uh, won my third straight U.S. Open title on Saturday night uh it was it was really i wouldn't have changed it for anything right it was like the storybook way to get on paul mitchell and like make that turnaround on short notice and, and go out there and get a win for the team right away uh, that was really really special um and then uh so that was 2012 would go on to win another u.s open title 2013 to complete the four peak, had an off year in 2014 Won two in one year because they had traditional creatives separate in 2015. So I won two in one year. And then uh, we move on to the next chapter of my career, which was the adult division. But yeah, that that process of being on Paul Mitchell, it was always a waiting game. It was all, what else do I have to do? When are they going to call? Uh, and
1: then when it finally happened, I mean, that, that was just so special. <laughs> Now, obviously, of all the accomplishments that you made, uh, you know, from Team Paul Mitchell um, and obviously all the world titles that you won, I'm going to put you on the spot here and and ask maybe a tough question. Um, Is there one single tournament that means the most to you, whether that's in your youth competition or your adult career? Is there one single title that you hold the most close to your heart?
0: It's a really good question it's a really good question um it's closed between three events and i think those three are pretty obvious right warrior cup us open diamonds those are the big three in sport karate right now mm-hmm. um if i had to say one particular of those titles that was the most special uh, the easy answer would be to just go with the first one which was 2010 us open but admittedly I don't remember a whole lot from the 2010 US Open, right? I remember like highlights, I remember coming off stage, I remember seeing the scores and winning, uh, but I don't remember the form very much. Um, if I had to pick one, I would say it was probably 2017 US Open, which was my first US Open title as an adult. Um, and it, it was for a few reasons, um, one of which was just the level of competition, right? Um, you know. I think that every great generation of sport karate needs kind of this triumvirate of great competitors to, to be remembered, right? In the 90s, it was Mike Chat, John Valera, Carmichael Simon, right? Uh, in the 2000s, for weapons, especially in the late 2000s, you had, it was more than a triumvirate. You had Kalman, you had Matt, you had Mark Candizzato, you had Rudy Reynon, it was stacked, right? And so you had that. And then there was really kind of a drought in the adult division. But then when I moved up to the adult division, uh, you had myself, you had Reed Presley, you had Cole Presley, mm-hmm. you had Tyler Weaver, Scott division, right? It felt like what I remember watching, when I would watch Kalman and Matt and Mark and Rudy, right? Mm-hmm. And to go to, you know, a stage like the U.S. Open and to win in a division that was that deep against those great competitors – um, that meant a lot to me because I didn't win the U.S. Open the year before, right? I was the defending junior champion. Reed was the defending adult champion. Reed got to go last. I went second to last. Um, and Reed made a great strategic decision. Um, I was really happy with my form that night. Uh, form to form comparison, I thought that I that I probably had an advantage. Uh, but Reed made a great strategic decision. Bruno Mars's "Uptown Funk" was the number one song. Yes, that was the song that he came out to at U.S. Open It got the crowd into it. Um, and he captured the momentum and he got the win that night, right? It was, it was a great strategic decision on his part um, and he got the win. And so coming back in 2017, because I was like, when I lost in 2015, when I or sorry, 14, when I lost in 15 and I ended the streak, that streak of four straight wins, if I had won five, that would have been the all-time record, right? People had won four straight weapons titles before. Kalman did it, Casey Marks did it, Jim Nguyen did it. But no one had ever done five straight weapons titles. And I was like, I'm gonna do it. Like I'm gonna be the one that sets the record. And then took an L in 2014, I was like, man. So I come back in 2015, immediately was like, okay, I need to start winning right now so that I can get back to my 5P by the time I'm in the adult division, right? So I did win that last year as a junior, but then streak snapped year one as an adult. Man, am I ever gonna get? Am I ever gonna get that chance again? Right. Um, so coming back in 2017, getting my title back and then winning the adult title in 2017, it was special for that reason because it, it validated me as an adult competitor. I had won a Warrior Cup the previous year. Um, I think I won the most overalls the previous year as an adult competitor. But winning the U.S. Open was when I was like, okay, I've got, I've gotten this division. Right, um, and then you know being able to win in 2018, 2019 U.S. Open, and then uh, you know coming back this year in 2021 after there was no 2020, um, and being the only competitor to four P twice. Um, if if I rewound the clock, and you had asked me in 2014, hey, would you rather win five in a row, or would you rather four P twice? I'd rather four p twice. Wow. Um, so you know the, the the 2017 win that kickstarted the active streak that's going on right now at U.S. Open, uh, and really that was the reason that I competed at U.S. Open this year because I didn't want to let the streak die. You know I didn't compete at Battle of Atlanta, I didn't compete at Diamonds, but I was like, man, if I don't compete at U.S. Open, the streak's gonna snap, and it could be a four p again. I could be the only person to four p twice. Man. And so I was like, I got to do it, right? And there's a really cool story behind US Open 2021. We'll get there. Um, But yeah, so US Open 2017 was a big turning point. It was when I truly felt like I had kind of gotten a a good hold of the adult division and and could be the the main guy, like I always saw myself being. And, And I tell people this all the time, you know, Kalman was probably my biggest inspiration in sport karate. Because I was a junior when Kalman was on his streak throughout, you know, the early 2010s, and late 2000s, when he won the four Diamond Rings and the four straight U.S. Opens. And he won the Warrior Cups, right? Uh, And I was watching that happen live. I was at every tournament that Kalman was winning, right? And he was doing it in dominant fashion against a deep division. Like, it wasn't like he was winning and there was nobody touching him, right? There was Matt Emmett. There was Mark. There was Rudy. Like, there was legitimate competition fellow team Paul Mitchell members every time that Kalman was stepping up to the plate. Um, and so that's what I looked at and I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to be the guy that gets to the adult division and can still be the number one weapons guy every time. Yeah. Um, and you know that, that US Open is, is really felt like I was making that transition to, to be able to do that. Um, and then winning four straight adult weapons US Opens like Kalman did, um, that, that was bad. That, that, was,
1: that meant a lot to me. Hell yeah. And so in addition to obviously winning world titles and getting onto Team Paul Mitchell, I think one of the other great markers of someone that has, a let's say for lack of a better term, made it as an established competitor and as someone at the forefront of competition is uh, getting their own signature line of weapons uh, and also creating a, a teaching system. Uh, obviously at one point you had a century martial arts boat collection um, and you also created your own system, I believe known as the flow system. Um, can you just let people know? Like, do they still have access to both of these things? Can they still purchase your bow collection, and can they still learn from the system that you created?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the uh, the plug there. So, uh, yeah, the bow, the bow collection is still out there. Uh, Centurymartialarts.com dot com. Just search Jackson Rudolph in the search bar, you'll see all the signature products. Uh, Of course, my signature green bow, you can also get it in blue and in red. Uh, There's a special illuminator version that's a little bit of a unique tape color. You can get it with grip, without grip. Um, We've also in the past couple of years introduced, there's now like a wood stain bow that you could use for traditional if you wanted to, um, as well as a product that I'm really proud of, which is the trainer bow, uh, which is basically a one size fits all bow training tool. It has two pieces of grip tape on it that shows you where the proper uh, position to hold the bow is. And it's the perfect length so that it'd be like a full-size bow for a kid. But even for an adult like me, it's the right length so that I can hold the bow in proper position and hit the strikes up against my body as hard as I want to. It doesn't break. I've trained with three or four of them over the years, never broken a single one of them um so it's a very durable training tool it's great for getting your hand positioning right training targeting um and also if you're like running a bow class and you have several of them you don't have to go through the whole like hey there's this stack of a bunch of different size bows in the corner kids go find your bow right they're all the same height and they're all meant to they're all made to be that way right So you can just hand them out and literally say, okay, we're going to practice this strike or that strike. So I'm really proud of that little innovation that we had. And then there's also a a signature carrying case as well. Um, So that's all on CenturyMartialArts.com. Just search Jackson Rudolph in the search bar. Uh, And then as far as curriculum goes, so there's actually two products that I have on the market right now. Uh, The flow system is still out there. Um, And the flow system was designed as a weapons training curriculum for martial arts schools. Mm -hmm. So it was specifically developed for that martial arts school owner that's like, I've never really done sport karate before, I don't know much about weapons training, we've always been more of a traditional school, Um, and what makes the flow system special and what makes it perfect for that type of school owner is that there's instructor training modules uh, implemented throughout the program. So not only are there the techniques for a given level, the combos that you'll learn, there's three different forms that are learned throughout the program. But there's also these supplemental uh, instructor training modules that go through some of the tips that I've used for years that help students understand how to do certain moves uh, more quickly and efficiently, uh, that increases consistency rates of those moves so that students aren't dropping all the time and gives those little tips. Um, and it's basically everything that an instructor needs to know to properly educate their students on the boat, right? Um, so that's what the Flow System is. That's still available at theflowsystem.tv. Um, after the success of the BOW program, we also brought in Mackenzie Emery to do a comma program. Uh, so you can find her comma program as well. And there's also kind of a, a pay one price that's a bundle for both the BOW and the Comma program that you can kind of rotate through. Um, and then who knows, in the future maybe we'll add nunchucks an and sword if people keep supporting and purchasing the program, right? Um, so that was a really cool collaboration with the Martial Arts Industry Association. Um, And then a more recent product is a collaboration with Black Belt Magazine and their online courses. They've got several great online courses that they have. Um, But Sammy Smith actually called me a couple years ago now and was like, I've got an idea. And so she pitched me this idea for Sport Karate University which isn't so much designed for the martial arts school owner, Sport Karate University is more designed for the individual student. Yeah, yeah. It's a very affordable price. Some of the modules you can get for as low as like 30 bucks to train with mm-hmm. Sammy and I for like an entire uh, training module, which is like ridiculously low pricing. So we made it affordable on purpose so that you know some kid somewhere that has never gotten a chance to learn sport karate can beg mom and dad for it, and they'll give in and they can start training, right? Um, and so that is designed for individuals Again, that's on Black Belt Magazine's uh, online store. Um, And if you just click on the online courses tab on blackbeltmag.com forward slash shop, or com. one of those two, you'll try them both. Or just Google search Sport Karate University, you'll find it. Um, but anyway, so yeah, that is. Uh, there's different modules. There's one that's like specifically for like, how do you compete? How do you perform at a tournament? And then of course, there's bow, there's nunchucks with Sammy, tricking, open forms, uh, the whole nine yards. So uh, yeah, really proud of all those projects that we've been able to put out. And a uh, huge shout out to Century Martial Arts for making all of it possible, right? century martial arts uh obviously they own the martial arts industry association that's the consulting department of century um and then century purchased black belt magazine several years ago um and so my connection with century runs deep and uh you know they uh they took a chance on me you know i was i was a, a 14 year old uh, 14 15 year old kid who had just got on paul mitchell and was uh you know winning some tournaments and um, you know, Century contacted me and said, Hey, you know, we'd be interested in doing a signature line of weapons with you. What do you think? Um, and so I took a trip to Oklahoma City, where Century headquarters is. And, um, you know, my dad and I had the meetings with them. And, uh, you know, I, I became the, the youngest competitor to ever get an endorsement from Century uh, or any martial arts company for that matter. Um, and so that, that was really, really special to, to be able to, to have that opportunity. And, you know, it, it's carried through for years. I'm still a Century ambassador. I work very closely with Black Boat Magazine as uh, a lot of people might know. And uh, it's been a really, really good partnership. And, and there's nobody else that I'd rather uh, be in cahoots with. I mean, Century, um, you walk into that building, you're treated like family. They do everything the right way. Uh, they've also, in recent years, become the apparel sponsor for Team Paul Mitchell. and They've done an incredible job with that. Um, and they're doing great things for sport karate as well. You know, the, the development of the signature series weapons, the C gear sparring line, all of that was an effort, um, to get into the sport karate market and engage with the sport karate community and help lift sport karate up. And, uh, centuries investing a lot of money now into the tournaments and into tournament coverage. And, um, you know, it's, it, it's really something that's promising for the future of sport karate is, is Century's
1: involvement. 100%, man. That, it's also so cool to see, uh, the way that you continue to be attached to them, like you said, and I kind of mentioned that you're an ambassador for Black Belt magazine, you're an inductee into the Hall of Fame. Uh, and so like I- I'm very curious in regards to this and everything that you got going on, because obviously you're you're going to medical school. We actually had to uh, bump this meeting up to Saturday because you need to study for finals on Sunday, which which obviously shows the amount of time that you need to put into your studies during this time. So um, you know, with everything that you have going on from you know helping be a part of Inside Scoop Podcast to being an ambassador for Black Belt magazine and and all the things that you have going on are you still going to compete as an adult
0: that's the big question right quick yes. clarification shout out to inside scoop with alex and jeff yes. so that's a show that the martial Arts dinner network does i've been on their show a few times they're friends of my show and then i've got the jackson rudolph podcast with um, magazine but anyway just wanted to throw that in there so that alex and jeff get a shout out but anyway um so the heavy question um am i still going to be competing The short answer is yes, right? Um, I fully intend to compete again. Um, Have I competed for the last time at the U.S. Open? It's possible, right? Um, However, I intend to compete again. Um, Again, it all depends on if I have the time to train while I'm here in medical school. If I feel that I'm healthy and I'm at my best and I can go out there and and be the Jackson Rudolph that I expect to be, um, then I'll be out there again. Uh, I'm still an active member of Team Paul Mitchell. I still train whenever I can. I'm still ready. If you need me to go out there and win an overall grand championship tomorrow, I could. But I don't just want to win. I want to do it my way. I want to do it the right way. Um, So uh, kind of in limbo right now, right? Uh, But I know that I'm closer to the end of my career than I am to the beginning. uh, And I do intend to compete again, right? So is there some percent chance that I'm not going to compete again? Of course there is, right? You can say that after any tournament. but. I
1: intend to be out there at some point. Wow. Okay. Okay. And and, and I, I want to ask this one question just because, um, you are one of the people that is still very closely connected with sport karate, obviously on the back end of that question of saying you may not compete again. Uh, this is a very open ended question, so I don't want to open a gigantic can of worms, but I am curious to get your opinion on this, um, Back when I was competing and back when I grew up watching things, obviously the tournament circuit was gigantic. I remember the crowds. I remember things being, um, some of the most exciting moments of my life were going to night shows and obviously, uh, seeing them and stuff like that. Do you think that we have hit the ceiling as far as sport karate tournaments, uh, as a whole? Um, and do you think that there still is a future for sport karate tournaments, I guess, uh, Continuing as far as growth is concerned, because obviously we've seen some drop off for lack of a better term. And obviously someone like yourself that is such a champion in heralding the importance of competition to continue to inspire kids. Um, Where do you think we're currently at? And do you think that uh, there will be some sort of revival, I guess, down the road?
0: Well we got a lot of work to do. Um do I think that we've reached the ceiling? Absolutely not. Um, you know, anybody that I've ever shown sport karate to for the first time, I've never had anybody not be impressed with it, right? They're always like, That's amazing. Like, how does he or she do that? Like that that's crazy, right? So the the interest is there from the from the general public, right? Sport karate has the potential to be a great spectator sport on the level of a extreme skateboarding or snowboarding or a lot of those X game sports right that's what i envision the future of sport karate being um, sport karate is never going to be basketball it's never going to be football it's just not it's not going to be that way But it could be snowboarding, it could be rollerblading or whatever, right? Any of those kind of niche extreme sports, surfing is another one, right? Sport karate could very well become uh, something that is at the level of those other legitimate professional sports where the athletes can make a living off of just competing, right? Right now, if you want to make a living in sport karate – and I've done it before. Um, you virtually have to be teaching every single weekend. You've got to have students on, you know, Skype or Zoom all the time in order to be bringing in enough money to, you know, really make make a legitimate living, right? Um, and that's not how it should be. Now, do I love teaching? And I enjoy every part of doing that? Do I still do that? Absolutely, I do. However, the future is is that you know, LeBron James, for example, doesn't have to go and teach basketball camps to make his money, right? He has his Lakers contract and that's plenty and then endorsements and all that, right? But That's the other thing. If you put sport karate on the platform of, say, a snowboarding, right, and maybe Shawn White's a better example than LeBron James, but you see where I'm getting at, right? But once you get sport karate to that level, it's not just the prize money that can be won at events. It's not just the sponsorship money that comes from those events, but it's also the endorsements for the individual athletes who are at the top of their game, right? Because if you give athletes a big enough platform, it's a whole lot easier to get an endorsement deal, Right. Like, I reached the pinnacle of sport karate and then was able to get an endorsement deal from Century because Century is a martial arts company. But in order for sport karate to have the future, we have to get outside of that. We need Gatorade to be interested. We need, you know, these other brands, major airlines, whatever the case may be, right? We need these other brands to be interested because the platform is big enough, there's enough eyeballs that the advertising and the endorsements are worth it to those major corporations, Right? so uh, i definitely think that there's more to you know more to sport karate that we have not reached the ceiling uh, you know if you even look back at like what's considered the golden era of sport karate right we had big night shows that were happening at the palace and on Auburn hills in detroit right we had night shows that are happening at the georgia dome in atlanta right so it's like we can absolutely get sport karate back to that um but there's a couple of things that need to happen right obviously some of the downturn that we've seen recently is because of covid we didn't have tournaments for a year obviously that's going to hurt stuff uh so we got to rebuild from covid number one number two we got to work together uh, you know on a lot of podcasts and message boards and stuff like that sport karate right now i see a lot of a lot of division a lot of people that want something to be done their way and they're arguing with the people that want it to be done their way and You know, that's never gonna get us anywhere, right? Ultimately, the people who hold the most power, the most influence in the sport, have to work together put their minds together um, to ultimately put the best product forward. And I do think we're taking steps in that direction. There are some role players that are working together in the right ways um, to get sport karate the exposure that it needs. Um, The recently announced partnership between Black Belt Magazine, sportmartialarts.com, Jungo TV and Matt Action is a big step in that direction. Jungo TV, I saw somewhere recently, they have like 300 million active users of their platform. right? And so it's like if we get events regularly streamed on Jungo TV, where there's 300 million people around the world that could see sport karate, there's a good chance that a lot of those 300 million people that see it will A, fall in love with it because it's exciting, it's a fun sport to watch. And number two, Amongst those 300 million, there's got to be a few that have the connections and resources necessary to help the sport get to where we want to get it to. Um, So in short, we have not reached the ceiling. Yes, we're trending down right now, but I think that we can trend back up uh, rather easily. We just work together um, and put the right competitors in the right places uh, for the right people to see them and for the sport to be lifted up through that route. Because at the end of the day, the competitors are the most important. Right. You can talk about promoters. You can talk about judging. You can talk about coaching all you want. The competitors are who drives the sport. Right. Why did I keep coming to sport karate tournaments? Because I was watching Matt and Calvin and Mark and Rudy. Right. And then I was fortunate to work really hard and become somebody that was wearing the black and white and competing on those stages. Right. But the sports are always going to be driven by the athletes right? You don't watch the NFL because of Bill Belichick. You watch the NFL to see if Tom Brady's going to keep playing until he's 80, right? Like, you watch sports for the athletes and their stories and to support them, Um, and then once you get the sport up to that level, Maybe we see the type of team support that we see in major professional sports, right? That's one thing that's kind of unique to sport karate that the individual professional sports don't have, skateboarding, snowboarding, is that a lot of times those are individual sponsorships. Like they'll wear the logo of an individual brand that sponsors that individual. Sport karate is kind of unique in the sense that we have teams for that, right? Team Paul Mitchell is all athletes sponsored by Paul Mitchell, right? Um, team Dojo Elite landed that Taco Bell sponsorship, right? That is a team that is sponsored by the brand Taco Bell, right? And so this, this unique concept in sport karate that teams are sponsored by brands instead of just individuals, um, is a kind of unique model in the sports world and I think it can work really well. Um, just like me, young kid watching the US Open, gravitated towards paul mitchell and became a fan of paul mitchell from day one you can get other uh spectators to become fans of these individual teams mm-hmm. um, and that's an advantage to the sport karate model that some of the other individual based professional sports just don't have
1: that makes a lot of sense man it it, it is something that is that. And, you know, for lack of a better term, it it was somewhat sad for me to see as I grew up uh, as someone that was born into the circuit and grew up watching everyone, uh, even back to, you know, I, I'm, I'm not trying to date myself here, but I was watching competitions, uh. Late '90s, early ni- uh, late '80s, early '90s. So I got to see back when uh, Hosung Pak got the first ever tens at the U.S. Open, and then the hype and the excitement around that tournament. Obviously, leading up to guys of my generation and watching, you know, fellow legends from Steve Torada to Matt Emig, and then watching the next generation of competitors like yourself. Um, I do hope that there is some sort of revival, and like you've stressed over the duration of this, and obviously, hopefully, people are taking away from this is that the importance that competition can have on on youth is such an impactful thing so uh you know fingers crossed that uh we will start to see some sort of revival even if that's baby steps and like you said i think the uh the partnerships that have just been landed recently will hopefully bring a larger audience into it so fingers crossed
0: absolutely yeah i mean that's really in this like latest chapter of my career that's what it's all about right is doing everything that i can do to get sport karate in front of more people and a lot of my work with black belt magazine is focused on getting sport karate accepted within the martial arts community right if the martial arts community itself doesn't accept us then how are we going to get spectators outside of that community to accept it right because a lot of the stuff that we typically see on social media from the majority of the martial arts community is sport karate's trash those are all cheerleaders the point fighters are playing tickle tag right like we see that stuff all the time and it's like you never see sport karate guys bashing the traditional guys like i've never heard a sport karate guy say hey we don't need this traditional stuff no a sport karate guy has never said that but for some reason these traditionalists consistently attack sport karate competitors Of like you're bad for the martial arts you're not a martial artist it's like. Why? You know what I mean? Just take it for what it is. All of these athletes have learned some form of a traditional art before you see them on stage doing the flips and the tricks or fighting and point fighting. They all have traditional training. They're all supporting the industry that you are making your livelihood (laughs) off of. So why would you not support them, right? And so a lot of my work with black belt, Because Black Belt's following is the general martial arts community, right? Even back in the day when Black Belt covered sport karate more in the days of your Bill Wallace and your Joe Lewis and all that, right? Um, Really, Black Belt mentioned those athletes, but there was a separate publication that Black Belt owned called Karate Illustrated that was for sport karate. Because a lot of the traditional martial arts community, they liked the full contact stuff, but really they wanted self-defense and stories about this master or that master or bruce lee or martial arts movies or whatever they never were really into sport karate. That was for the Karate Illustrated audience, right? Which, of course, Black Belt owned, right? And so now what I'm trying to do with Black Belt is just normalize sport karate within the the bigger martial arts community, Um, and so far we've been successful in doing that. Do you still occasionally get the negative comments? Of course. You know, that's probably not going to happen until the the baby boomer generation has moved on, right? Um, So you're you're always going to have those naysayers, but like we did a live stream of the runoffs at the Pan American internationals and that's like up over three and a half million views now on the black belt page right so getting that kind of exposure getting that kind of support from that community is a huge step forward um, and that's one of the big things that i've been pushing for and that's why I do my podcast. That's why I write up articles. That's why I commentate any time that I get the chance, which is what made for the, the wild 2021 US Open story, uh, was the fact that I was commentating there too. But we would get into that. Uh, but that's the reason I do what I do now, is to help sport karate gain that foothold and get those eyeballs necessary to create a better platform for the sport, which will give more opportunities to competitors for years to come.
1: Okay. Super, super cool, man. Now, this is a this is a question I always ask everyone before we get out of here. And I, I want to ask you because I feel like someone that's as uh, analytical and a thinking brain like yourself has probably has an answer to this. They'll be all encompassing between your own personal journey and martial arts is concerned. Um, and obviously, we've touched on your past uh, briefly and obviously where you're at currently. And so this this is something that's so important. Also, it's just a, a way for us to 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 kind of view the journey that you're about to go on. So... Uh, It's all encompassing. Where do you personally see yourself five years from now? And then where do you see yourself 10 years from now?
0: Great question. Um, I'll start five years from now. So five years from now, from a medical school perspective, I will have graduated medical school, will have been promoted to captain in the army, and I will be somewhere working as a resident. If I go neurosurgery, it'll probably be Walter Reed uh, because Walter Reed, this is going to scare some people, there is one neurosurgical residency spot available every year at Walter Reed, right? And it is the only spot in which you can stay active duty military while doing your training. Otherwise, you have to go into the reserves and you can train in a civilian school, this and the other. But if you want to stay in the military and do your residency training, there is one spot at Walter Reed that anybody in the military who wants to be a neurosurgeon, they apply for, right? Uh, So that's, as of right now, what I plan on applying for, right? So, Assuming that goes the way that I expect it to, uh, five years from now, I will likely be a neurosurgical resident at uh, Walter Reed uh, National Military Medical Center, right? What does that mean for sport karate? The cool thing about being in the military is that we have what's called leave, right? And so you have the opportunity to take leave as a member of the military uh, whenever you need to take leave. Now, of course, that has to be a moderation. You can't just do it all the time. But what it does mean is that if there are two days a friday saturday that i need to get away because i want to be at the u.s open um i should be able to make that happen for years to come right um and so that's kind of the 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 hidden benefit in there is that the the way that the military schedule works and the way the residency training works i'll typically be able to find a way to get to these events that i want to be at right um five years from now will i still be competing Who knows, but most likely not. Right. Um, If you were to ask me in general, how would I how would I rate that likelihood? Will you see me compete again? I would say that is likely. Will you see me competing in five years? That is unlikely. Right. Um, So that's kind of the way that works out. But I'll still be at events wanting to cover it. And that's something that I discovered during the pandemic is that I love commentating. Right? Like I'd always kind of thought that I would want to do it, like listening to the ESPN broadcast for US Open every year. Like I was, man, that'd be a cool gig. I, I bet I could do that. Um, but then I kind of got my first couple of opportunities um, during the pandemic, right? Jesse Ray has his virtual fight tour. Uh, I had a chance to commentate for that event. Uh, he also did a special virtual forms tour. I commentated for that. Then I got some recognition from some people that tuned in, like, hey, commentating was pretty good. And so I said, okay. so I went and I did commentating for Pro Point, which was another point fighting promotion that was going on. And they had a big event that I actually went in person and commentated at with uh, Alex Reyes and Ernest the Cat Miller. Uh, So I did some commentating there, got some good reviews from that as well. Uh, And then I found myself commentating at the Battle of Atlanta and their nice show that Sport Martial Arts was streaming. Um, And so it was Mallory Woods and I in the booth. And we had we had a lot of fun and uh, lots of really, really good feedback from that as well. And so one thing led to another. And I found out U.S. Open was interested in having me commentate, right? And this is where I've been prefacing this multiple times throughout the show. So I'll, I'll go briefly into this. The 2021 U.S. Open story is a weird one because I talked to the U.S. Open promoters probably four or five months before the event. And they said that they wanted me to commentate, but they know that I'm defending a title and that I probably want to compete and that it was going to be possible for me to do both, right? And I was like, well, how's that going to work? And they were like, well, we can schedule the show so that you'll be in the booth for a lot of it, and then you'll have time to leave and go warm up and then go do the thing, right? And I was like, okay, like, hey, if you're going to let me do both, I'll find a way to do both. Let's make it happen. All fine and dandy until about a week before the U.S. Open, when I get a call from another member of the production team that isn't the promoter that I had spoken to prior, and this other member of the production team says, hey, that's not going to work. We need you to commentate. And I'm like, I, I've been training. Like, I've been, I've been getting ready for this. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm ready to go defend the title and commentate. But I also recognize, and this is where I get into the five-year plan, I want to be commentating at as many as many events as will let me get in front of a microphone five years from now, right? Because if there's commentating, that means there's a stream, and if there's a stream, that means there's more eyeballs, right? And so anytime that you want to put me in front of a mic to talk about sport karate five years from now, ten years from now, I'm going to make myself available to do it because it's something that I'm passionate about and I genuinely genuinely believe that that will help the sport grow, especially with, with my commentating style. I like to be very descriptive. I like to let the, the audience member know what was going on, right? I know the names of the tricking techniques. I know the names of the weapons tricks. You're not going to get commentary from me that's just like, oh, that was a cool move. No, you're going to get commentary that says, that was a shuriken cutter." because the competitor took off of one foot, did a backward flip as they were twisting, throwing two hook kicks around. Like you're gonna get a description of what is actually going on so that someone that's never seen it before isn't just like, oh cool, next channel. They're like, he did what? So that that's a big reason that I commentate the way that I do and that's why I wanna stay involved in it. But anyway, week before the US Open, they tell me, hey, We're not going to be able to make it work, but we need you to commentate because we don't have a backup plan. Uh, But, of course, there's other competitors. They'll, They'll do the division and you'll just commentate. And, you know, I was a little disappointed in that because I wanted to go defend my title. But I was like, this is what I need to do. This is the right thing to do. I'll go commentate, right? Well, that was the plan was for me to just commentate until Thursday night. So the competition, of course, starts on Friday. And Thursday night, I get a text from one of the promoters to go meet him somewhere. It's like 11 p.m., right? And I have this meeting with the promoter, and essentially they're like, I know that people told you that you were only gonna be able to commentate. However, we've been over this again and again and again, and we've figured out a way to make the schedule work. I know that this is random, and you haven't thought that you were gonna compete for over a week, can you compete? And I was like, absolutely, sign me up. Um, So I found out that I was competing at the U.S. Open literally like 12 hours before my first division started. So I go back to my room, go to bed, wake up, go to work, right? Um, Won each of my divisions, won the runoffs, won the daytime grands. Uh, and then went on stage Saturday night and you know was able to defend my title Saturday night. Um, but like the fact that I was competing, yes, I trained for it for months leading up to, which is why I had a new move planned at the end of the form, which I was able to pull off. Mm-hmm. Um, but the last week leading up to the event, I didn't think I was competing. And uh, I learned 12 hours before the tournament starts, uh, hey, yeah, you, let, let's make this work, go compete. And I was like, okay. Um, So that's the kind of wild story behind US Open. And then it it did work out that way. I commentated for probably an hour and a half to two hours at the beginning of the show uh, when it came time for me to get ready for sync with my partner, Jake Presley. uh, Left the booth, ran backstage, got changed. Jake, you know the choreography? Yeah, I do, we're good. Jake and I go on stage, go win that title. I come off stage, I go back to the booth in my full uniform, commentate the 14 to 17 weapons grants because I specifically requested to commentate that division because it was a wild division. And then I run backstage, get warmed up, and then go compete in the men's weapons fight. So that was the US Open. Right? Had to throw that in there because I haven't really gotten to talk about exactly how all that played out. It's a really cool story. But anyway, so five years from now, commentating as much as possible. Um, be writing articles for black Belt magazine to get the word out there about sport karate. Um, and you know, still teaching. I love sharing the the things that I've been able to pick up over my years in the sport, um, with, with all of my students. And so anybody that wants private lessons or seminars, I'm still going to be sharing that obviously not as frequently as I, as I am now, or as I used to, because I'll be a resident, um, you know, but I'm still going to be actively involved in martial arts throughout that, that process because, I can't live without it. I'm addicted to this stuff, right? Um, and then ten years from now, let's see. By then, I'll be a second year resident. Five years from now, so ten years from now, I'll be right at the end of neurosurgical residency, which is just the training phase. I mentioned at the, at the beginning of the show that yeah, you're a, you're a doctor, but you're still in training. Um, so ten years from now, I'll be looking at you know becoming an attending physician somewhere, um, you know, and hopefully trying to climb up the ranks and become the head of neurosurgery. Or if I decide to go into a different field, trying to become a department head or something like that. Uh, I've always loved teaching. That's obvious through martial arts. Um, so maybe I'll try to get some time, some type of an academic position within the medical field. So that not only will I practice and be in the OR, but I'll also train medical students, something like that. Um, I'd be very interested in. Um, and then again. I'll always have a hand on martial arts, right? Um, And then coaching too. Like right now I've got Team Competitive Edge and, um, you know, coaching is another passion of mine and, and, you know, helping those kids reach another level, not on a private coaching level, uh, but just giving competitors a platform to compete on by having a team, right? And so uh, I've got some goals within the coaching world that I'm pursuing and, um, you know, that's something that I'm really excited about as well. So I'm always going to be around sport karate. I'm always going to be involved uh, but of course, five years, ten years, I'll be a resident. Hopefully, being an attending, and then uh, you know, trying to climb that ladder as well. And I guess that's my take-home message for the show. And I preach this all the time: is that often you hear motivational speakers being like, you know, find what it is that you want and go for it, and you know, don't let anything distract you from that goal and that specific path, right? Um, but I've never seen life that way, you know, my dad taught me from a young age, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. And that's the motto that I live by. Um, I love studying and the practice of medicine. That's one thing that I love about the military training is that we've already started to see patients. Um, so I've seen patients in the hospital, patients that have dealt with major surgeries, infections, things of that nature, um, you know, collecting their medical history and things of that nature, and just communicating with them, right? So I, I love the practice of medicine. Uh, And I love sport karate and I can chase both of those dreams at once. And I've done that effectively for years and and I'll continue to try to do that effectively. Um, So my take home message is don't let anybody tell you that there's only one thing you can do. You know, the classic is don't let anybody tell you that you can't do something. Don't let anybody tell you you can only do one thing. Do as many things as you want, because if you love it, you'll make time for it. If you
1: love it, you'll be good at it. One hundred percent, man. Yo, man, literally on behalf of myself and the community, you know, we really appreciate everything that you uh, not only are continue to contribute to the martial arts, but everything that you have contributed over the years from, you know, being an example uh, by winning world titles, you know, by being a member of Team Paul Mitchell, by getting inducted in the Hall of Fame. Uh, It's amazing to see everything you've accomplished. And uh, one thing that I want to make sure that we talk about before we get out of here is letting people know how they can continue to stay up to date with your journey and everything that you consistently have going on because you are someone that is still so very active active. And I feel like uh, we've only touched the surface of your life and they can continue to stay up to date with everything by following these platforms. So uh, real quick, can you just shout out how people can continue to follow you and uh, promote anything that you want to? We'll be sure to throw it on the screen and spell it right and stuff like that.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you, man. So, yeah, if you want to follow me, uh, Instagram is where I do a lot of my sport karate posting. That's at JacksonRudolph1. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook. I do a lot of my more uh, business stuff, like my Magazine stuff through Facebook. So you can find me there as well. Just my name, Jackson Rudolph. Uh, Follow the Jax Rudolph Podcast, that's like my official page on Facebook, Uh, so you can check out that show as well. Um, What we do on that show is a lot of sport karate history conversations. Uh, So like, like a few weeks ago on the show we had Keith Vitale who was like the first ever winner of the Diamond Ring, right? Um, so definitely check out the Jackson Rudolph podcast and that Facebook page uh, that gets streamed on Black Belt magazine on a weekly basis. So that'll be coming back in full force in 2022. Um, and then, of course, keep tuned into the Jamcast as well. Right. The more podcasts you listen to, the more uh, martial arts knowledge you're going to you're going to have pumping through your veins. So uh, definitely stay tuned to the Jamcast. But, yeah, my pages, Instagram, Jackson Rudolph One, Facebook, Jackson Rudolph at the Jax Rudolph podcast on Facebook. Um, and that's about all that I do on social media. I have a Twitter, but I don't use it much. I have a TikTok, but I don't use it much. I'll get on that. I think that those are both just like uh, Twitter's at Jax Rudolph too, TikTok's at Jax Rudolph. Um, but yeah, so Instagram, Facebook, and places to be for me.
1: Hell yeah. Guys, please be sure to hit that like button, comment, subscribe for brand new episodes each and every week. Join us every Monday for Jam Breakdowns and every Friday for a brand new Jamcast, interviewing influential members of the Moody community like Mr. Jackson Rudolph himself. So guys, with that being said, I got to give one more very special shout out. Thanks for coming through, brother. I really appreciate your time and everything you've done. Thank you so much
0: absolutely thank you for having me on the show it's a great show you got here man i tune in as often as i can love what you're doing and thank you for everything you do for the martial arts with jam and your work in the stunt industry all of that makes a huge impact so thank you man i appreciate you
1: hell yeah and guys with that being said as always coming at you coming through i'm your host travis Wong. thanks for joining us here on another jam cast until next time we'll see you all soon peace